Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Sunday School Bonanza, brought to you by This Week in Mormons. You can find us at thisweekinmormons.com and see all this great stuff. Uh, we're here bringing you Gospel Doctrine lesson reviews so that you can be better prepared as you attend Gospel Doctrine or if this supplants, uh, you know, not being able to go to Gospel Doctrine at all if you're stuck in primary like I am. So it's good times. Um, joined this week by a new host, so we're going to try him out. Be merciful to him, listeners. Steve Pierce is here. Hi, Steve. Howdy, y'all. I'm actually really excited to have Steve. I think I had to cajole him a little bit to get him into the idea, but he's a... Uh, I, I expect good things. Well, you're very persuasive. I, I'm ready. I think he's good. This week's lesson is Lesson 30. It's called The Prisoners Shall Go Free. The primary thing we're going to be talking about here, Nauvoo Temple and especially baptisms uh, for the dead. But to lead into it, um, of course, we know a lot about Alvin Smith. Uh, Steve, you, tell me about Alvin Smith. This was a big, th- he was a big thing for Joseph Smith, his older brother, Alvin. Yeah, I mean, Alvin died when Joseph, and very early in Joseph's ministry, actually before the church was even organized, um, but after Joseph uh, receives the first vision. And he was a, he believed Joseph, and Joseph um, loved Alvin and respected Alvin as his older brother. And Alvin really was kind of a de facto figurehead in the Smith household um, when kind of Joseph Sr. couldn't really fulfill that role a lot of the time. Yeah. So Alvin was very beloved. Um, and Joseph was very worried when Alvin died. Alvin died an untimely death. He was an unbaptized Christian. Although he was a good man, he wasn't baptized. And Joseph was very concerned um, and preoccupied with, through much of his life uh, about what the state of Alvin's soul would be because he hadn't been baptized. So that very much informs um, him looking into this subject and being concerned and taking the subject before the Lord. Exactly. And that's why I find it, I love that President Hinckley points this out, because one of the, the things that, that uh, Moroni said when he would come and repeat words to Joseph Smith and teach him, he recited the words from Malachi, mm-hmm. which I don't remember exactly by memory right now, but you know, the hearts of the children. Turn to the fathers, etc. 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 And this did intrigue Joseph Smith, but what is very significant about this is that before Joseph Smith was baptized, before he received the gold plates, before the priesthood was restored, any of that, there was mention of, of this idea of tying generations together uh, and really, in effect, describing temple work. And I just love that that really outlies what the grand purpose is of our Father in Heaven. You know, he wasn't saying, like, your grand purpose is solely for this record, and then stuff will come down the line. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, I want my children to have the opportunity to be exalted and to be united uh, as eternal families. That's the main thing we're talking about here. And then, you know, piece by piece, I'm going to give you the tools in order to put it together. And so what's particularly cool is uh, as we enter the Nauvoo era, uh, it's different, of course. The Kirtland Temple ordinances, temple work, those things didn't transpire, either for oneself or for the dead. The Kirtland Temple was more, I kind of, I honestly view it a lot like the Aaronic Priesthood. It feels like it was the preparatory temple in a way, where a lot of other great things were restored there, keys, vital things that came to pass later on. But we find that as the saints constructed uh, the Nauvoo Temple, that is where really the fullness of the ordinances and really essentially everything that we have today was finally finally brought to pass. Yeah, it's uh, the Kirtland Temple functioned very much more like a meeting house than it did as uh, as a temple that we would consider a temple today. Yeah. The Nauvoo Temple is really the first uh, the first temple that functions as a place for ordinances to be to be performed uh, in the sense that we do them with our hundred and thirty some odd temples yeah. today. So this is a this is a big step forward, and this is actually what the Lord begins to lay out uh, in section one twenty four of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a lot of what this lesson dwells on. Is is we're going to build this temple in Nauvoo now that we're here, uh, and here's why it's important. Here are okay. these ordinances that we haven't done before. I will say this too. 124 is not a section I paid a lot of attention to before looking into this lesson. It's actually pretty, there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. In this lesson and in the, the previous one, ton of great stuff in 124. 
Yeah, it's uh, 124 is actually uh, the church history department. I don't know if you, if some of the listeners out there, if you ever are looking in, looking into doing you know more study before you go into a Sunday school lesson beyond just listening to this podcast, uh, right. the church, of course, of course, you would want to do, uh, but the actual, church actual study, actual yes, study, sure. but of course, listening to the podcast too. But uh, the church history department actually does it, puts out a thing on their website called uh, Revelations in Context, where they go through each of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants and offer historical context for what's going on, why it's important, what the revelation means, um, which is really interesting. And one of the things that they talk about on um, their histor- in Revelations in Context thing for 124 is that this is really the spiritual charter of the church in Nauvoo. This is really the Lord setting forth and organizing the church and, say- and setting priorities for what's important, and the temple hmm. is a big priority. Yeah, I'll say, and it wasn't. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the show, so it wasn't it? It's what one t- sections one twenty four, one twenty five, one twenty six, one twenty four, one twenty seven, and one twenty eight, which are, are the three, which are the three sections that this lesson is primarily based around. Those were the only three uh, sections that church members who lived at the time of Nauvoo. Um, those were the only three sections that were canonical to them. They were the only three sections that were canonized uh, into the church's uh, revelation and scripture. Hmm. Um, at that point during Joseph's life. Now, we know that six others uh, were canonized after Joseph's death, but at the time, sure. these, were, these were revelations that people in Nauvoo knew that, they were, that were important to them and that meant something. And I think the reason why is because of what you touched on, Jeff, about how there's some really great stuff in here, and it was a lot of direction from the Lord specifically about what they were supposed to be doing right then in Nauvoo and what the mission of the church was in Nauvoo at the time. Could you imagine... I can't imagine being in that era. I mean, we we receive great instruction from our prophets in this day, but to actually have these sort of declared sections of revelation given to us to just have with us on our person that, you know, have President Monson came, all right, I'm going to throw on section 140 now, the Doctrine and Covenants. I know I'm jumping a few more sections extra there, but, uh, <laughs> and to just have that. I know organization came later on as far as the way that the book was put together. That is remarkable because we have a lot of great counsel, but I would love to have just... I would stand in awe of that, I guess, if I were living in the Nauvoo era and I had those those few verses. Um, and some vital things, of course, were also uh, you know, talk, talked about in uh, section 124, namely the importance of the temple itself. Uh, the, the lesson outlines three main things. We talk about uh, revealing additional priesthood ordinances to provide a place for baptisms of the dead, which is interesting because before that, I think they'd, they'd been doing some, correct me if I'm wrong, but they didn't have a set place for it. I know, was it before or after when they kept doing them in the when they were doing them in the Mississippi? Well, baptisms for the dead are actually announced about a year before this. This, all, this revelation comes in January of 1841. Baptisms for the dead are actually announced to the church at large in August of 1840, so a little okay. bit. So it's like six months before, and they immediately the church cottons to this, and they start all the church members love this. They love this idea. It's a beautiful doctrine. They start doing it in the Mississippi River um, and all the rivers around Nauvoo, and it's a it's a big thing. And then when this revelation comes in January of eighteen forty one, uh, it specifically says baptisms for the dead are supposed to be done um, in Re- the temple, restricted to the temple. yeah, and that's why. And they continue to do them for a little bit while after this, uh, but the Lord comes back about eight or nine months later, and says, okay, until the temple is done, we're not doing any more in the Mississippi River. We need to focus all our energies on getting it to, uh, getting the temple um, finished, getting the temple built so we can do this in the proper place. And interestingly enough, about a month later, Brigham Young dedicates a small temporary font in the basement of the temple, which had already been built at that time. That was time. the wooden one. Or the whatever, wooden right? font, yeah. yeah, in the bottom of the temple. And so they can start doing them. That's how great the appetite was. It was one of the first things that was built for the temple. And Did they ever build a... a- 
a you know hewn from stone font in the Nabu Temple, or was the wood one the one that just stuck? I think they did. Them? Ultimately, I'm not 100 percent certain on that, so I don't want to speak false doctrine sure, or sure. anything. But I I believe they did. But I think the fact that they did build the temporary one and do it so quickly because it took them five years after that point to finish the temple. Yeah. But the first thing they did was build that temporary wooden uh, wooden font to continue to do this work because people were so you know, so taken by it and thought it was so important. Yeah. What's of interesting note, I, I was looking up some of the, my wife and I were talking about how the Nabu temple was destroyed and I, was, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if I remember if it was like lightning struck or a tornado or mobs or whatever. We just know it was kind of, it's kind of was lit on fire and some people even blame Brigham Young sending people back to, you know, to prevent it from being like desecrated or what right. have you. But I, I, I read that one of the only things that remained after the city of Nauvoo decided to kind of knock down the final facade when a lot of stuff was gone was the pump that was next to where the baptismal font hmm. was in order to fill it because that was a pump that was stuck in the ground. And I love thinking that that was that one thing that remained to fill up the, the font with water and that was it. And it's amazing, of course, today, you know, now that we have a, a temple just standing back on those same grounds. I remember I was on my mission when they dedicated the new Nauvoo Temple. That was pretty cool. You probably have a memory, I think, probably. Did you go to the dedication or anything when you were younger? Uh, I did go to the dedication on like the the simulcast, like in my stake center, yeah. And I remember doing that, uh, the Hosanna shout for the first time. I'd never done it before. And so I remember thinking, why are we waving these these handkerchiefs? This is this is quite unique and interesting. Yeah, we don't do this that often. It is strange when you think but about it. But it was cool. It was, no. It's a cool thing, but it's very it's very unique. As far as I remember, that might have been the only uh, church-wide si- closed-circuit simulcast for a temple dedication, I think. A lot of the time now when they have them, if it's regional, you know, meeting right. houses beam it in. But I can't think of any other one that's been no. church-wide since those times. Um so I love baptisms for the dead. And it, honestly, it's like so many of the things in the gospel makes perfect sense. This is my opinion, I guess. But to me, it makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't we do this? Because it's so obvious that there are saving ordinances mm-hmm. related uh, to everything in the gospel. And why would we leave those who don't have a chance to participate in them? You know, why would we not let them have the chance to do it? Like Alvin Smith is the perfect example. So of course, this was near and dear to the prophet Joseph. And by being able to perform ordinance for the dead, just as it said in the New Testament, just as they were doing back then, it enabled people to, uh, you know, to accept those ordinances and to move on on their their path towards exaltation. That's what I love. I mean, was it First Corinthians when we find all that great stuff? And I think we also find some in Second Peter. I want to say I might be off base here on my citations, but uh, it's amazing. It's right there. You know, why are you baptizing for the dead? And I remember, I don't feel like this is too sacred to share. I was in the temple recently doing a sealing assignment, and the sealer took a lot of breaks to instruct us, which is like nothing I've ever done before. Usually they just kind of power through and, mm-hmm. and get it done. Instead, he'd do something and be like, all right, let's take a break. And then he'd kind of just sit back in his chair and ask us if we had questions for him. You know, it's a free-for-all. You're in the safe confines of the temple. And um, he talked about how he found a church in northern Germany that had a straight-up baptismal font, and some of the etchings in the language clearly made reference to it being for the fallen, in a sense. Hmm. And he asked the people in this church, like, what's this all about? And this church dated back to, uh, what was it, 400 AD or something like that? I don't know if my wife remembers or not. But point is, it was of the era, and this mm-hmm. font was that old. And the people in the church today didn't even know what it was for. They're like, we don't know why this is here. We assume, like, what is this, baptisms for the dead? They had no clue, and it's amazing what truths can be lost. When you see when the floundering original church still was obviously able to, uh, you know, compel people to participate in those ordinances, just such as being baptized for the dead. Yeah. Even in Northern Europe, you know, which is pretty pretty far reach, I think, for the primitive church. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, like you mentioned, the things that are, the things that can be lost. And baptisms for the dead, um, to me, 
is one of the more the most beautiful doctrines of Mormonism. This idea, the entire concept of doing work for those who didn't have the opportunity to do it themselves and giving them an opportunity in the next life. Um, as Joseph used to say, you know, this of, of things that you know he felt were true. It tastes good. And mm-hmm. to me, it just it just tastes good. And so I've always appreciated that. And I loved, you know, when I was younger um, and used to go with your youth group to go to the temple and do right. baptisms for the yeah. dead. And those are, as someone who, you know, grew up in the church and I, I didn't have to be, I wasn't, I was born in the covenant, I wasn't sealed to my parents, so I'd never been to the temple other than doing baptisms for the right. dead. And that's really the first taste you get of of the temple and, and the feelings that are there and the spirit that's there and that higher purpose that you're you're participating in these ordinances for somebody who without your help um and without you uh without you being there on their behalf is you know they're they're in trouble uh, eternally and they they may yeah. not they may not get an opportunity if you're not there helping them and at the same time it's it's a beautiful thing for you spiritually and a, and and a, a faith affirming activity so it's it's a it's a great thing sure and it's wonderful to think about to really try to think about who these people are you know you don't always know them but, uh, yeah, to give these people a chance. And I myself, I've never taken my own names to do baptisms or anything like that. And that's mm-hmm. something I, you know, it's a goal I have. And it's something that I feel is lacking in my personal discipleship, actually getting my own names in the temple. But it's something I really want to do because I feel like it's, it's wonderful. And once you're endowed and married and doing a lot of stuff, we don't often get to go do baptismal assignments. So it's something yeah. I, I find that I relish a lot more when I have that opportunity. Um, when I was in a singles ward, it was great because there are so many sisters who haven't received their endowments yet, but mm-hmm. they have a chance to do baptisms. And you see what a wonderful opportunity it is to serve and how, how much it lays the foundation uh, for all the other ordinances of the temple. And then in that sense, the foundation, I think it's no shocker that baptismal fonts are almost always in a basement level yeah. where it's applicable in a temple. So Absolutely. So we really hope that all of you will take the time to go to the house of the Lord, do baptisms for the dead. If you're not going, if you're not worthy of the temple, whatever it may be, Take care of it, you know, get in there because the temple's a wonderful place. And uh, there's something so, there's such simplistic beauty in doing baptisms for the dead. It's one of the least weird things I honestly think about our, our, our church and our religion, even though uh, when we're under the microscope, people try to point it out like it's some, you know, weird thing that we're wrestling people into becoming Mormons, you know, once right. from beyond the grave. But uh, I think it's pretty great. Steve, we thank you for taking the time to be with us this week. Anytime, sir. Nice for you to be here. Uh, folks, we hope you'll find us again at thisweekinmormons.com, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Stitcher Radio. Subscribe on iTunes, do all that stuff. It's a laundry list that I get tired of saying. But if you want to send us an email, uh, email us at contact at thisweekinmormons.com. You can email me. You can email it to, to Steve, and I'll pass it along to him, and he'll see it too, whatever you like. This has been Lesson 30. The Prisoners Shall Go Free. This is Sunday School Bonanza, bringing you quick gospel doctrine review, and we hope you have a great Sabbath. Bye-bye.